We're going to have a couple of scripture passages this morning. Psalm 82 is our Old Testament scripture passage. It's not listed in the bulletin, but it's on Pew Bible, page 921. Pew Bible, page 921. And uh, we're reading Psalm 82 for a very specific reason, and hopefully uh, when we get into our text in John 10, you'll see why. Psalm 82, hear now the reading of God's word. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all all the nations are your inheritance. And turning over to John chapter 10. Starting in verse 31, Pew Bible, page 1,667. I'm going to start the reading in verse 22 to give a little bit of context. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one could snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came... And the scripture cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. As I was 
studying this passage, I was really struck with the concept or the idea uh, of being charged for a crime you didn't commit. Being charged for a crime you didn't commit. It happens quite often in our justice system, more than we would like to think. There's many organizations that work towards getting these uh, allegedly charged criminals out of prison. And I looked up a few, and the ones that really stand out to you, the ones that really come across to you as something to be modeled are those people who are charged with a crime that they know they did not commit. And regardless of the pressures of the justice system to try to take a plea deal or whatever it may be, they would not profess to having committed that crime, even spending years upon years, decades upon decades in prison, continuing to proclaim, I did not do it. Well, Christ is in a little bit of that situation here this morning. He's being charged with a crime he didn't commit. And the crime is blasphemy. Now, of course, in this day and age, the Jew has had no right to give the death penalty, for they were under the control of Rome. But the Old Testament does say that blasphemy, the crime of blasphemy, is to receive the death penalty uh, by stoning. And so, here's a little bit of mob justice. They believe that Christ has committed this crime, and they're going to try to uh, stone him to death. But what's really being said clearly in this passage this morning is that Christ is proclaiming that what he does reveals who he is. What he does reveals who he is. That's the thrust of this passage. It's the thrust of his proclamation. It's the thrust of his defense of having not committed the crime of blasphemy. What he does reveals who he is. And we're going to look at this passage in three parts. First is the charge of that crime, blasphemy. And that's verses 31 to 33. Then there's the challenge that comes from Christ, verses 34 through 38. And then lastly, the consequences of what goes on here. And that's verses 39 to 42. So the charge, the challenge, the consequences. Let's look first at the charge. This accusation, this moment when these Jews pick up stones to stone Christ, follows right on the heels of of Christ's statement in verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, last week when we spoke about, or a couple weeks ago when we spoke about this passage, I said that the essence of what Christ is saying here is that they're one in will and purpose. But we could say here that these Jews are understanding that he's speaking a little bit more than that. Christ said... I give them eternal life. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then verse 29, my Father has given them to me. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So they're one in purpose and will in the salvation of the elect. No one can snatch them out of Christ's hand. 
no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this statement, I and the Father are one, to the Jews, is a claim to equality with God. In fact, we see that. Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles, or the word here is works, from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? So Jesus is making a distinction here. He, he wants to see if they are stoning him for something that he has done rather than something that he has said, okay? And that's why I'm telling you that what's going on here is Christ is saying what I do, what I do reveals who I am. What I do reveals who I am. And so he asks this question, I've shown you many great works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And their answer is, we're not stoning you for any of the things that you've done. Although, if you remember the book of John, they've tried to do that before. So, not very uh, honest there. We're not stoning you for anything that you've done, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And the original Greek here says, make yourself God. You make yourself God. There couldn't be a more ironic statement in the Gospel of John than you, Jesus, make yourself God. We have to go back to John 1, the prologue. We have to read and remember the words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh. And then to hear these words from these Jews, you, a mere man, make yourself God. There's nothing more ironic than that statement because Christ could do nothing of that. In fact, it would be more appropriate to say, you, second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Son, have taken on man. We're not stoning you for anything that you've done. We're stoning you for what you have said. Blasphemy. And it's interesting to think that their understanding of the commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, is limited to the words that you say. For we know that the third commandment goes much deeper than that. Blasphemy is not simply about what you say. It's about what you say about God. And because we are made in the image of God, what we do says something about who God is. Have you never heard the statement, actions speak louder than words? Well, when we take on the name of Christ, when we are called Christian, little Christ, what we do says something about who Christ is. See, that's what these Jews wanted. They wanted a simple law. One that was limited to outward realities. The words that you say is all that God is going to hold you accountable to. 
So if you do not take the Lord's name in vain, you do not, you're not guilty of breaking the third commandment, guilty of blasphemy. But everything that these Jews do says something about the God they claim to worship. And the very reality that God is standing right before them and they've picked up stones to stone them is in itself blasphemy. The tables have turned, haven't they? They didn't understand what Christ is trying to communicate. That what he does reveals who he is. And everything that he does is what the Father does. Because he and the Father are one. So if you look at what the Father does, if you look at what I do and do not see what the Father does, then you are so blind. That's the charge. The charge is blasphemy. You have a mere man made yourself to be God. Christ is going to challenge this. But he's going to challenge this in a very interesting way. Maybe in a way that we wouldn't think. Because when I'm reading this, I think to myself, they're saying that God the Son has committed blasphemy by claiming to be God. You can't commit blasphemy if you're God and claim to be God. Christ is being charged for a crime he didn't commit. And I assure you, he's not going to take a plea deal. But what's he going to do? Is he going to say, I cannot commit blasphemy, I'm God. I'm God the Son. No, what's very interesting about what Christ does is that he makes a biblical argument. He reveals to us the high view of Scripture he has. He takes it to the Bible. He takes it to the Scriptures. And that's why we read Psalm 82, because he quotes from it. So let's look at the challenge that Christ gives back to this charge of blasphemy. He answers them, is it not written in your law? The word law here is a, a way of summarizing all of the Old Testament scriptures. Is it not written in the Old Testament scriptures? I have said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father sanctified as his very own, set apart? And sent into the world. So let's start there at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. So Christ goes to their scriptures because he knows that they accept that authority. They don't accept him as an authority. They accept the scriptures as an authority from God. And he quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. Now, why it's important for us to go back and to understand the context of Psalm 82 and what's being stated uh, is very clear. 82, verse 6 says, I said, you are gods. 
You are all sons of the Most High. And the beginning of the psalm says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment amongst the gods. And in the NIV, it's, gone, it's done this helpful thing to get rid of the ambiguity, so to speak, of putting air quotes around the phrase gods. I said you are gods. And what's being spoken of here in Psalm 82 are the judges of Israel. The judges of Israel are given charge over Israel to give judgments in accordance with God's law. Therefore, they stand in the place of God. And they are to judge righteously. These judges are, you could say, in a figurative sense, little g gods. In fact, the scriptures use this very terminology. Uh, the Hebrew here says, El presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment amongst the Elohim. We are not to say that there are multiplicity of gods, nor are we to say that here in Psalm 82, we are being called little g-gods. There's a false teaching out there that says that we as mankind made in the image of God are little gods. What's actually being said here is a proclamation of judgment against the judges in Israel. Those who are put in leadership in Israel who have then used their authority that's given to them by God to perform unrighteousness. In verse 2, we see this proclamation, right? How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? This is not what God would do. What would God do? How does God expect you to judge in his place? Verse 3. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And these judges' minds, they're darkened. Verse 5, they know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then in verse 6, we see where Christ quoted from. I said, you are God's. You are all sons of the Most High. Is this a weighty proclamation of glory? You only got to read to the next verse. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other prince, like every other ruler. I have given you a place of authority in Israel to stand in my place, to judge in accordance with my law, and you have abused that power. Therefore, you will be judged by me. And you will die like every other man. So, what's Jesus doing here? Quoting Psalm 82. In response to the charge of blasphemy. How is this a challenge? Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. This is what Jesus is doing. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, 
If in the holy inspired word of God, which cannot be broken, there is a way in which you can speak about mankind and use the word God as an analogy or as an illustration or as poetic. If you can say, if God can say in Psalm 82, you are gods, in speaking to the judges of Israel, the wicked judges of Israel, then why cannot I, who have been set apart by the Father for his very own, by, as his very own, and sent into the world, not say I am God's son? Here are these wicked judges in Israel. Psalm 82 speaks to their actions, right? They have done unjust things. They have not defended the cause of the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow. They have abused their power. Their actions speak to who they are. What they do reveals who they are in Psalm 82. Wicked judges who will be judged by God for their abuse of power. Yet God calls them gods, sons of the Most High. Here is Christ, who has done all things in accordance with God's law, who has performed many mighty miracles and works, who has taught as one who has authority. And he has said, I am the son of God. And his actions, what he does, speaks to who he is. And if what he does speaks to who he is, in the same way that what these wicked judges in Psalm 82 do, speak to who they are, then what he does speaks something else. It speaks that he and the Father are one. That what Christ does reveals who he is. He is the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. The one who brings truth and grace. The one who's come down from above that we may be born from above, born again. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is Christ, the anointed. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me. And I and the Father. If you're not going to believe in me, believe in what I do. If you're not going to believe in what I say, believe in what I do. And hopes that you seeing what I do reveals to you who I truly am. 
the challenge that Christ is making to these Jews is that they have wrongly charged him with blasphemy. Because even in their very own scriptures, the terminology of God is applied to men, and not only men, but wicked men who do not deserve to have the title God, even if it is scare quoted with a little g. Yet here stands before them a man who has done nothing but good works before them, the healing of the blind and the lame, the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000. And he calls himself God's son. What they're being faced with here is their hypocrisy. They don't truly believe that he has committed blasphemy. They're so filled with hatred towards this man that they will put on him whatever crime seems fitting in that moment. Whatever crime would end in his death by their hands. For anyone can see that Christ and the Father are one. Anyone can see by what Christ does, he reveals who he is. Anyone can see that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. But verse 39 tells us, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. There's one thing that we can learn from this challenge, it's this. That if Christ himself has a high view of God's word, if he himself proclaims that the scripture cannot be broken, we, as God's people, should have a high view of God's word as well. We should have the view of scripture that Christ has, the faith that what it says cannot be broken, that we can trust it. And unlike these Jews who would be blinded to what God's word says if it fit their needs and their desires, we should have our eyes clearly open to the fact that all that God's word says about Christ can be trusted, can be counted on, can be a promise that we know will be kept. For all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. What about the consequences? What resulted from this challenge that Christ gave? Well, we saw that they tried to seize him again, but he escaped their grasp. In verse 39, what's not clearly stated here but can be assumed is that this constant refrain that we've seen in the book of John, that his time had not yet come, is true here as well. That Christ cannot be seized because he cannot be seized until the time of his crucifixion, the time when he will be handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified for the salvation of his sheep. And so he escapes their grasp. Then we read, for fear of his life, that Jesus goes back across to the Jordan 
and leaves Jerusalem to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and here he stayed. Uh, what's kind of happening here is a full circle in the Gospel of John. Right before Jesus makes his final march into Jerusalem and his final deadlocked path towards the cross, he comes back to where it all began, on the place of the Jordan where John was, where we heard those first words from John, testifying to the identity of who Christ is and saying, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. And we see that he comes back here. John, is long, John the, the Baptist, or the baptizer, has long been um, martyred. But he comes back to that area where John was baptizing. And he stayed. And we hear the many in the countryside came out to him. And they said, though John never performed the miraculous sign, something that was um, expected of those who would be, have the name prophet. If you think of... Elijah and Elisha and all the little miracles that they performed. If you think of Moses and the other prophets uh, that performed miracles. Uh, but John never did. He never performed a miraculous sign. Although he is given the title of prophet because all that John said about this man was true. All that John said about Christ was true. And so what we have here is what I often call the unbelief-belief sandwich of John's gospel. In almost every passage, we're presented with a contrast. We're presented with the contrast of these Jews who are filled with such hatred towards Jesus Christ that they cannot see that the very Son of God, God the Son, is standing before them. They seek to stone Him to death. Uh, it's one of such cold-hearted unbelief, such rejection of Christ's identity and who he is, that they are not even willing to believe him on, the, on account of what he's done, the miracles that he's done. They want him dead, and they want him dead yesterday. So you have that picture, but then you have this picture. Um telling picture that speaks to John the Baptist's ministry, that he came to prepare a way to till the ground of Israel, that they may be ready for Christ, that there are those, there are those who not only believe in what Christ says, but they see that what he does reveals who he is. And they make this proclamation of John that all that John said about this man was true. And in verse 42, we hear this great promise of comforting words. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. In that place, many believed in Jesus. See, these words are comforting to us because if we are always faced before us the hard-hearted unbelief of the Jews, we may not believe that the coming of Christ is accomplishing salvation. But when we hear these words from John's gospel, in that place many believed in Jesus, believing in the testimony of John the Baptist concerning him, 
It gives us hope. It gives us hope that those of us that have loved ones that we know and continue to pray for who have not placed faith in Christ and may do so one day, that we're not to write them off as hopeless causes, as Jews who cannot see that Christ is the Son of God, who hate Him and seek to kill Him, but that one day they may believe the testimony of John the Baptist, that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that He is the Great One, the Messiah, to come to save us from our sins. And that one day they may believe in Jesus. So it gives us hope for others, but it also is a comfort to us because we are those who believe in Jesus. We are ones who have, by God's grace, been enlightened that we may see that what Christ does reveals who He is. That He is in the Father and the Father is in Him, that Christ and the Father are one. And that we, by the gift of the Holy Spirit within us, may be able to see the kingdom of God, may be able to see Christ for who He truly is, That what he does, his miracles, his works, his signs, point us to his identity. That he is the son of God, that he is to be trusted with our life. And that now we are hidden in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places. The unbelieving Jews, those who believed across the Jordan also provides anyone here this morning with an opportunity to assess their own condition, their own situation, their own circumstances. Am I the unbelieving Jews? Or am I those who believed across the Jordan? My prayer is that as you hear these words, that what Christ does, his miracles, his works, point to who he is, that you would also be presented with the opportunity to believe on this Christ. That he is God the Son, that he died on the cross and three days later was raised from the dead, defeating sin and death, and that he is the only hope and comfort that we, anyone, can have in this life, and that if you have not cast yourself upon him for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, that today is the day of salvation. But do not harden your hearts as these Jews did, but believe the testimony of John. And believe on Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, we thank you for these words. We ask that you would reveal Christ to us all the more that we may behold his beauty, his glory, his majesty, that we may be comforted 
and his forgiveness. Comfort in, in his intercession for us before you. His work of advocacy in the throne room of heaven. And Lord, we pray. We pray for those who have not placed faith in Christ that you, God, would do a work in them and bring them to salvation. We pray for all those who have received a baptism and all that it promises, Lord, who have not yet placed faith, professed faith in you. And Lord, we hold you accountable to those promises. We pray for all of our loved ones, family, friends, that we desire so greatly to see come to saving faith in Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would never lose faith, never lose fervency in praying for them. And we praise you, Lord, for the salvation that you've given to us, knowing that none of us are deserving of it. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life, that you would work in their hearts to trust, to trust in you, to turn away from their sin, to turn towards you, to come to the light. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.